anxious or afraid. How many, how many kids have ever felt that way? Afraid or stressed, you know, maybe you got a lot of chores to do or school or, or something. So, so raise your hands, come on, raise them up. Who has been stressed or anxious or worried or afraid? All right, now watch this, kids. Grown-ups, who has been stressed or worried or afraid or anxious? All right, kids, if you see anybody whose hand's not up, you tell them to raise their hand. Right? Good job. All right, all of us feel that way sometimes. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Guess what, kids? This morning, I have been really, really stressed out. Even as I've been thinking about this stuff all week, I've been stressed out this morning. So what Isaiah, God using Isaiah, tells God's people is he tells them not to be afraid, not to worry, not, not to stress, not to be anxious, not to feel the way that we feel sometimes. And he tells them two things, two things about that. The first thing he tells them is he tells them to remember who they are. He wants them to know that they are God's people. They're God's children. Kids, you are God's children. He cares about you. He loves you so. Because he loves you so, uh, if you put your trust in him, he will hold you fast. Because of who we are, and Isaiah reminds God's people of who they are, he tells them then the second thing, don't worry. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be stressed. Don't be anxious because you're God's people. And so he tells them those things again and again and again. He says, don't worry because you're God's people. Because you're God's people, don't worry. Don't worry because you're God's people. Because you're God's people, don't worry. He keeps saying that again and again and again. And the reason why he says it again and again and again is because we are people who get stressed and anxious and worried and afraid, and so we need that reminder again and again and again and again. And so kids, uh, I would encourage you, when you feel stressed out, or when you feel afraid, or when you're worried, or when you're anxious, to remember who God has said you are, to remember the things that your parents have told you about how God cares for you and loves you, and and trust in those things. Uh, And ask your parents to Keep telling you those things so that you remember who you are and that you're not afraid. Um, and go home today and ask your parents about how they're going to apply that in their life uh, as they deal with stress and anxiety and fear and worry. Um, so let's pray together and we'll get into the passage this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a steadfast God and that there is no one or nothing that is more steadfast than you are. And so when you make promises in your word that you have steadfast love for your people, we know that it will last We know that you will hold us fast because there's nothing that can conquer you and your love for us. God, I pray this morning that as we look at your word together in Isaiah and and, and see your promises to your people as they're in exile and and waiting for you to bring them back to the land and you're you're telling them not to be afraid, um, 
that, that we would see in these words application for, for our life right now, today, and, and this week, um, that we would be reminded about who we are as your people. Um, and that that reminder, that, that truth, the identity that we have in Christ would help us uh, to be people who, when we are afraid or when we're stressed or when we're anxious or when we're worried, um, that we would look to you because we know that you are our only hope and that you will hold us fast. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that, that your death on our behalf and your resurrection mean that all of God's promises are true and find their yes in you. And so your, your steadfast love isn't just something we can read about, but it's something that we can see demonstrated on the cross and be reminded about in the Lord's Supper each week and in worship. We thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 41. And so if you would, go ahead and turn there. We're going to start by reading all uh, 29 verses. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment together. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who wage war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory." When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome and declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up the one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he calls upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is none. Among these there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So, in our passage this morning, there's, there's, there's three sections, and there's two things happening in those three sections. It's, it's like a sandwich, where we've got two pieces of bread and some meat in the middle. So that the first section and the last section, the bread, are talking about the, the nations. And God is kind of calling them on trial and indicting their gods for being false gods. That's what's, that's what's happening with the bread. And the sandwich is the stuff in the middle that's about God's people, about who they are and why they shouldn't fear. Um, and so this, 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 this sandwich is um, it's a sandwich where the bread's important, right? If I said, like... You know, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, the peanut butter and jelly is what matters. The bread, like, it could be white, it could be wheat, but it it doesn't really matter. But if I say, like, I'm going to have a ham and cheese sandwich on rye or pumpernickel, like, those breads are worthy of mention. Right? They're, They're significant enough in the bread world that they merit mention at the end of the sandwich. That's what this passage is like. The bread is important too because uh, that's supporting the sandwich in between, right? If you don't have any bread or your bread's, you know, insufficient bread, then it's just a soggy mess and it's not a good sandwich. The, the promises that he's giving to God's people are directly related to his indictment of the false gods and the nations around him. They should trust in God because he is the true God. He's the one who declares what's about to happen. The false gods can't do that because they're empty wind. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at the bread first, and then we're going to come back and look at the meat together. So the, the first section, which is verse 1 through 7, where he's, he's kind of calling these nations, he begins by saying, listen to me in silence, you know, be quiet and listen, O coastlands, let the people renew their strength. He's asking them to kind of get ready to give an answer to the questions that he's going to ask them. He says, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. So he's asking the nations, asking their, their, their gods, who is it that's risen up this one from the east? We don't know who this guy is yet, but he's this kind of mysterious figure that is active in this chapter. He's somebody uh, that is, is victorious everywhere he goes. 
And then he describes more about him in verses 2 and 3. He says, He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like stubble driven with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. We, we should have a slide at the very end, Kevin, um, because it's, it's a little confusing. There's, there's two different he's that are acting here. So he, number one, gives up nations before him, number two, so that he, number two, tramples kings underfoot. He makes them, number one, like dust with his sword, number two, like stubble with his bow, number two. He, number two, pursues them and passes on by paths his feet have not trod. So there's two different people that are acting here. And the question to the nations is, who is he, number one? He, number two, is this guy who meets victory at every step, but who is the one that's put him in this place of power? So he asks again in verse 4, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? And then he answers, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last am he. So, so who has stirred up the one from the east? The answer is, God did. The Lord has, has, has elevated this person from the east who's going to do all these things, who's going to meet victory at every step, who's going to you know, trample the nations underfoot and all that stuff. Uh, there's this mysterious figure that God has put in a position of power who's going to kind of wreak havoc in the world. And the result, verse 5, is that the coastlands, these nations, have seen this and they're freaked out. The ends of the earth tremble, they've drawn near and come, and so this is what they do. This is their response. This is how the nations respond to fear and anxiety and stress and worry. Uh, Verse 6, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So they're like psyching each other up. Like, we can do this. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good, good job, you know, way to solder that. Uh, They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What's happening here is they're pumping each other up to make more idols. And and hopefully, if, if the soldering is good enough, and if the idol is built well enough, and we use, we use nails and we, we really pound them in, you know, our idols won't fall over. And they'll be able to help us when this guy from the east comes to take us down. This is the hope that they, they, they're putting their, their faith in. Continues in verse 21 with, with the other piece of bread. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. He's getting to his point here, right? He's saying this one from the east is going to come, and now he's calling their idols to say, tell us what's going to happen next. Prove that your gods really are gods. Let them predict what's about to take place. He says, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. What's going to happen? Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do harm or do good, that we may be dismayed and terrified. He's saying, get your gods to do something. It could be good, it could be bad. But prove that they're really gods. It doesn't matter that the soldering is good. It doesn't matter that the nails are deep. Verse 24, behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he 
who chooses you. And then he reiterates his point. I stirred up the one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He's come from the east. And he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Then he answers his question for them. Who has declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There is none who declared it. None of the idols have done this. None have proclaimed this. None have heard their words uh, because they're statues and they don't say anything. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. He's declaring these things, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor. When I ask, uh, no one gives an answer. The idols cannot answer this question that God is asking because, verse 29, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. They can't declare what's going to happen because they're nothing. He is the one who's talking about this person from the east who's going to come and do these things among the nation. And so, right here, we're at a, uh, a, a choose-your-own-adventure part of the story. The question is, do you want me to spoil who this person is, or do we want to wait till later in the book of Isaiah to find out the answer? Spoil, no spoil. Spoil, all right. <laughs> who he's talking about, and, and he's going to mention him by name in the next few chapters, is this guy named Cyrus who is insignificant at this point. And so the fact that God looks into the future and says, there's going to be this guy named Cyrus, which I would think not a very common name. I I don't know. Um, He's going to come from the east and from the north, and he's going to wreak havoc among the nations. That's That's a fairly specific thing for God to say. And Cyrus uh, becomes, he's a Persian, so he's from the east, and he unites the Persian and and Median empires, and uh, is ultimately the one who conquers Babylon. And he conquers Babylon, wait for it, from the north. So he's from the east, he comes from the north, he takes down Babylon, and then God uses him because he's someone who has this really weird opinion in Babylon that thinks, hey, all these people from all these nations that you've captured and brought here, we should send them back to their lands. And God uses Cyrus to send God's people back to their land and pays the bill for them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So here, in these early chapters of the second half of the book of Isaiah, God is looking into the future and he's pointing this guy out and saying, I'm going to raise this person up and this is the thing that they're going to do. And all the gods of the nations have no idea that's going to take place. Because they're delusion. So this is the bread that upholds the sandwich. The false gods are worthless. They don't know the end from the beginning. God does. He declares what's going to happen. And because he knows what's going to happen, he can give them these promises in the middle. Verse 8. Here, he's going to tell them two things. The first thing is that they need to remember who they are, which we've already talked about. The second thing is because of that, don't be afraid. And these are overlapped throughout this middle section. He kind of hits one, then goes back to the other and just alternates back and forth. 
So he starts by telling them who they are. But you, Israel my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So this is who they are. The first thing is that they're God's servant. So the very beginning, they're reminded that their role in the world is to do what God says. They're just kind of being reminded, this is, this is your position in God's economy. right? We're not equal with him. He's sovereign. He's the king. He's in control. We fall underneath that. And so when he says, do this, it should be our role as his servants to obey. Um, then he comes with... Um, Maybe some more relational reminders. Uh, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So he's telling them they're not just they're not just servants; they're also children. They're children of the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a great name. He's going to make him into a family. He's going to give him a land. He was going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Now God is reminding His people that they are children. They are in, in, inheritors of that promise, and so. God is going to bless the people that bless them, and he's going to curse the people that curse them. So he's going to bring them back to the land, and Babylon is going to be judged. They're going to be condemned. They're going to be taken over, and their empire is going to fall apart. He's going to bring them back to the land and be a blessing to them so that they can be a blessing to others. He says he took them from the ends of the earth. He called them from its furthest corners. There's not going to be any that are left out. God is going to call his people back to the land and bring them because they're his servants, because they're children of the promise. It reminds them that he's chosen them and not cast them off. So they don't need to fear because they're his people. Verse 10, he turns to the second thing. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why is God going to do these things? Because there is people. He even does both in the same verse. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Fear not, for I am with you. Because God is in relationship with his people, because they're his children, because they're his servants, they shouldn't be afraid. This is going to be the result of God being with his people, him upholding them. Verse 11, he says, All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not fight them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing as all. So so they're, 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 they're in a place where they are feeling fear and worry and stress and anxiety. And God tells them that, when you look for the people that you're worried about or stressed about or afraid of, they're not even going to be there because God is going to be with them. So he's giving them these promises to trust in. He says, I, the Lord your God, verse 13, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So again, he's just layering these things back to back to back to back. Remember who you are. Because of who you are, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of who you are. Remember who you are and don't be afraid. He's just going back and forth, telling them these things again and again and again. Verse 15, he tells them something else that they are. 
This one's kind of different. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. So he's going to make them a threshing sledge. A threshing sledge, in addition to being a difficult phrase to say, uh, is this like heavy piece of wood that on the underside of it has, has teeth, you know, metal or stone that are just kind of jammed in there. And what you do is you take this threshing sledge and you drag it around the threshing floor. And those teeth, they break up the chaff and the grain so that then you can move the threshing sledge out of the way and take a pitchfork and throw the chaff and the grain together up into the air. And then the wind comes along and it blows away the chaff. And what you're left with is grain. So God is telling his people that they are like the threshing sledge. I think there's two things that are important for us to recognize about that. The first is that a, a threshing sledge is, is not a complicated piece of equipment. Right? It's not, a, it's not a particularly sophisticated tool. It's a piece of wood that you drag around the floor. And so God's people are like this tool which is kind of insignificant. It's useful. It has its purpose. But it's all about the one who's using it. Right? They, they know what the tool does and how it works. There are some things out there that like, you know, anyone can use this tool and not screw it up. Uh, the threshing sledge is something that the farmer has to know what he's doing or he's going to overthresh the grain or underthresh the grain and then his, his whole process is going to be a waste of time. He's going to ruin his harvest. And so it's emphasizing the skill and ability of the person that's wielding the tool. So even as God is telling them, hey, you guys are a tool. They're a tool in God's hands, and, and it's his work that matters. They're just serving his purposes, and his purposes in this is that he's going to use them to thresh the mountains, the, the major powers in the world, and crush them. He's going to make the hills like chaff. He's going to use them all over the earth. He's dragging his people around so that he can separate the wheat from the chaff, so that he can reveal who his people really are through this process. And as he does that, he's going to cast off the ones who aren't his people and bring his people back into the land. And so, since they're God's people, they don't need to be afraid about this process. It's not going to be pleasant at times. You know, them going off into exile, them coming back to the land, them dealing with opposition in the land. It's going to be painful, but God is going to be with them and he's going to be using them to accomplish his purposes. Now listen to Verses 17 through 20. He says, When the the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So he's telling them that they're going to be, you know, in the midst of a desert. 
and they're going to be thirsty, and God is going to provide water, and they're going to need shelter, and God is going to provide it, and they're going to have other needs, and God is going to provide it. What does that remind you of in the Old Testament? The Exodus, right? God's people are in the wilderness. They need water. God miraculously provides it in the midst of the wilderness. He is looking back and reminding them about what God has done. The Exodus and the Passover are kind of the the prime example of God's redemption in the Old Testament, which is why, as you read the Old Testament, it gets brought up again and again and again and again because the prophets and the priests and the kings are continually telling God's people, remember what God has done for you. He brought you out of Egypt. He did these miraculous things on your behalf. And here, as he's giving God's people comfort as they're in the midst of exile, he's telling them God is about to do something like that again. He's going to bring you back to the land in such a way that there's going to be no other explanation for it than God has done this thing. Because of that, because who they are, they are God's people who have been brought out of Egypt. They're his servant. He has chosen them. He's called them from the ends of the earth. They're children of the promise. They're his threshing sledge. Because of who God's people are, he tells them not to be afraid because he's going to be with them. He's going to uphold them in his hand. So they shouldn't fear, because they're God's people. And because they're God's people, they shouldn't fear. And he just tells them these things again and again and again. For us today, we're in a much better position than them. First of all, we're not, uh, you know, exiled in a foreign land uh, in the sense that there are, you know, earthly powers over us and oppressing us. I mean, we are, right, citizens in heaven, and we're exiled here in a fallen and broken world still. But God's people in Isaiah's day, they had to look back on the Passover. Or past this point, they maybe looked back on the exile and how God brought them back to the land. They, they trusted in those promises, which are only promises that point to what we get to look back to, right? The All God's acts of redemption in the Old Testament are just kind of building anticipation for what he does in Christ. And so as God's people, we get to hold on to and cling to and trust in and, and look back on so many of his promises already kept in Christ. And so as we think about this message that Isaiah is giving to his people to tell them you know, not to be afraid and not to worry and not to stress and not to be anxious because of who they are, we need to be reminded that we have so many more promises to trust in and cling to than they did. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would just encourage you to spend time reminding yourself about the realities of who you are in Christ. That he's saved you. He he is saving you. He will save you. You are his child. He's adopted you, brought you into his family. You've been justified. You're, You're being sanctified. You will be glorified. These things that the New Testament tells us over and over and over and over again about who we are in Christ. All of those are because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, spend some time praying and asking the Holy Spirit to remind you about those things. And then because you know those things are true, 
Spend time thinking about the things in your life that could cause you to be afraid or worried or stressed or anxious. And then remind yourself that because God is who he is, and because he has done what he has done, and because you are who he says you are, we should and can have full confidence that he will do what he says he will do. Because we can look back and see what he's already done. Anything else we might turn to. No matter how good the soldering is and how strong the nails are, it's not going to last and it's not going to sustain us. It's not going to get rid of our anxiety or our fear or our worry. It's just going to cause more of it because that's going to fail and then we're going to stress about that. So I would encourage you this morning to, to remember who you are and don't be afraid because of who you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And that it's packed full of truth about who you are and what you've done and who we are and what you call us to do. And that it doesn't just look to the past, but that you have declared the end from the beginning. That, that only you can tell us what, what is to come. And that because you can do that and that you're in control of what comes next, we can trust that because you are our God and we are your people, that you'll be with us and that you'll be in control and that you can provide us with the comfort that we need now in the midst of worry and stress. God, I pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that you would send your spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That you would powerfully bring to mind the realities of the gospel that we trust in. That the Lord's Supper today would be for us a vivid reminder of what Christ has done for us and, and the realities of those things for us today, this morning. And that you would cause us to, to cling to those truths. And that even as we're weak and fail to do that, that you would remind us that you will hold us fast. Help us not to fear or worry or stress or be anxious. Because we know who you are and because you remind us about who we are. 